0: I've got some really great news for us as a church family. AMC Theaters is finally open, open this week. Hope you caught the 15-cent shows on Thursday, which really got me thinking about my favorite big-screen adaptations of biblical stories. Like, what are, what's Paul Gilbert's top three? And, of course, there's the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston. You know, I would be no kind of pastor if I didn't choose Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, right? But, of course, my all-time favorite... Jonah and the Veggie Tales the movie um, right up there at the top. However, I'm still anxiously awaiting for someone to take up Genesis 37 through 50 and the story of Joseph. Let's be honest; those of you who have read the story before, you know it has everything a compelling blockbuster needs: betrayal, deception, clandestine shenanigans, seduction, drama. It's got a hero. It has villain villains. It has redemption. You see, for the last 23 chapters as we've been walking through Genesis together over this past year, we've been embedded into the story of the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's kind of spanned about 200 years of biblical history. But now the scene shifts decisively to Jacob's sons. And so for the next four months... We're doing sort of a series within a series as we come down the home stretch of Genesis, something we're calling Joseph, God meant good. Now, why are, we, why are we calling it that? Well, if you've read ahead, spoiler alert, to the end of the story, and in Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph is gathered up with all of his brothers 22 years after this episode that we just read about, and he's speaking about being thrown into the pit and being sold into slavery, he says this in Genesis 50, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, the paradox of this is that compared to the rest of Genesis, Genesis 37 through 50 has relatively few mentions of God. It was something I discovered as was really studying this in depth for the first time in a long time. God is mentioned relatively compared to the rest of the book very few times, and it seems that one of the things that Moses wants to impress upon us as he's writing this is that behind the seemingly tragic and chaotic and sinful events of Joseph and his brothers, God nonetheless while quietly, okay, in the background, is also relentlessly sort of kneading like dough his sovereign yeast into the very fabric of this mess of a situation. That that God, while maybe not prominent, um, like we sometimes feel God might be distant, he is in fact working he is, in fact, relentlessly pursuing, orchestrating, designing all these random, chaotic, sinful things that are happening around us and maybe to us into his glorious, sovereign will. And so those, that's where we're going to go today as we introduce Genesis 37. Two points, and here they are. Number one, we're going to look at the brotherly deception, and it is a deception. It is a, It is a dark, dark story in many ways. But secondly... We're going to highlight and see God's sovereign design in it. So let's pray and commit our time to the Lord. Lord Jesus, this is one of those stories that maybe we've heard a million times growing up in Sunday school. Maybe it's kind of like the prodigal son. We've heard it so many times, we don't think there's anything else to sort of wring out of it. But Lord, we know that's a deception. Lord, we know that's not true. Lord, we know that we need your visitation of your Holy Spirit hour by hour, minute by minute, decision by decision. And a lot of us, a lot of friends here are in pits and they need a word, Lord. They need to hear from you. And so, Father, we ask that you would meet us in a very powerful way this morning. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Brotherly deception. Well, verse 2 tells us that Joseph is the tender age of 17. Now, we love to think about Joseph as a spiritual hero, and as we're going to see, he very much is that, but yet, and the commentators are kind of divided on this, but I think it's pretty clear if you read between the lines. I think at this point, that's not where Joseph is. In fact, I think he's a 17-year-old little snot, to be honest with you, right? Right. It says in verse 2 that he brought to his dad a bad report. Now, every time that word in the Hebrew is used in the Old Testament always denotes not just bad news, but bad news that is highlighted or slanted in the most strategic way to shed the worst possible light. So parents, you know how this works in your household, right? So when one kid accuses another kid of some kind of high crime and misdemeanor, you know, misplaced toothpaste or towel or something like that. It's in the worst possible light. And certainly that seems to be what Jacob, or I'm sorry, Joseph is doing here. And in fact, we see it in verse three, we, and we sense that, like, what this does to the familial relationships, because in verse three, it tells us that Jacob loved Joseph more than the others. Now, as we've seen in the, in the not just in Jacob's line, but really in, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this issue of family favoritism. I mean, it's extended all the way from Isaac and Abraham and Ishmael and Esau and Jacob. I mean, this has been a systemic sin that has just permeated and seeped into this family. It's something they've continued to struggle with, and it's, it's present here in this situation as well. In fact, it says that the brothers hated him so much, look at verse 4, they could not speak peacefully with him. Literally, they couldn't stand each other. They couldn't even talk. Now, you can imagine as a 17-year-old, and that's the dynamic in your family, Joseph subsequently had all these dreams, these two dreams about his brothers and sisters and his parents coming and bowing before him. And so he did what any 17-year-old did who's on the outs with his brothers already. He went and told them about the dream, right? Very kind of him. And it says that because of that, they hated him all the more. But, you know, I think the tipping point in this story has to do with the coat. Now, traditionally, and it's, in fact, it's interpreted this way in the ESV, that it's, that's, traditionally it's interpreted as the coat of many colors. Um, alas, our beautiful stage backdrop here. But, but actually, the literal Hebrew doesn't mean coat of many colors. I didn't have the courage to tell our creative team that they're going to to take that down after the service, but... No, it, it, it was probably multicolored, but the term literally means coat with long sleeves. It, it was used to connotate kind of this extravagant, ostentatious, decorated kind of robe with ornaments that was meant to denote royalty or succession or prominence in a family. And it's not too difficult to see what's going on here. Joseph was Jacob's favorite. He was his chosen successor. As we know from last week in the passage, Reuben is on the outs and Simeon and Levi have been shedding blood left and right. And so Jacob's like, forget these guys. Jacob is, I'm sorry, Joseph is my anointed. And you know that the brothers knew this. And this really sets the stage for this decisive encounter that we see in this passage. Look at verses 13 and 14. Jacob tells Joseph to go check on his brother's. Well, for good reason, right? Joseph has given him a bad report. They're also in Shechem. And remember, in Shechem is where they were prior to living in um, in Bethel, where they are now, because that is going to be the place where, remember we heard from last week, they killed all the, the resident peoples. And so they were sort of in dangerous territory. But he sends Joseph there, and it says that Joseph And the the nature of the Hebrew is that he's literally wandering around lost. He's looking for his brothers, and he runs into this man who tells them they aren't here. They're over in Dothan. Now, try to track along here. From where they were, where Joseph and Jacob live, and they had set up shop, it was 50 miles to Shechem. So so Jacob sent Joseph on a 50-mile journey by himself. And when he gets to Shechem, they tell him he's in Dothan, which is another 14 miles. So, all told, he's about five days' journey away from home. He's isolated. He's unprotected. And by the way, he's absolutely clueless, right? Here he is, separated from his home, separated from the protective covering of his dad. His brothers hate him. He's just. Strolling across the plane, right, in this in this coat. And this coat is like a homing beacon. You have to know it is. And the brothers see him from a distance. You know, in college, University of Tennessee in Knoxville, the most hated class or group of students by far were the people who wrote the parking tickets. By far, right? And we prayed imprecatory curses down upon them every opportunity we got. Well, there's a very famous story that circulated around. It's completely true, a promise. There was a pizza delivery guy from Dino's, of course, who pulled up to the fire lane. And you're not supposed to park there, but he just had to run his pizza into the dorm real quick to deliver it. So he put his flashers on, you know, just to kind of say, hey, I'm just here for a moment. Well, that was like blood in the water to sharks, right? So the, so the, the ticket guy immediately ticks, uh, tickets him and in the process gets a beat down because of it. It was on the front page of the paper and it was glorious. All right. And this is what this coat did, right? It was like a beacon. You could see it from miles away. They, they noted it and they are just seething by the time Joseph gets there. And not only that, but it's, Given them time to plot and to think and to strategize, well, what are they going to do with this guy? And you know it didn't start off that way. You know, like, it probably started off, wouldn't it be just great to fill in the blank? Wouldn't it be great just to, to mess with Joseph a little bit? And then it, intensity builds, the hatreds build, and they are planning to kill him. Now, it says in the text that Reuben, it was Reuben's idea not to kill him outright, but to throw him into the pit. He wanted to come back later and rescue him. Now, that sounds magnanimous, but remember, Reuben is on the outs with Jacob. He's on the outs with Jacob because he has slept with Billa, his dad's maidservant. He's trying to displace Jacob's position in the family. And so this is not necessarily magnanimous of Reuben. Reuben's looking for anything, right? He's thinking of himself. He wants to get back in the good graces of his Dad. Now, sometimes when we come to this story, as I've prayed, so many have heard it so many times, we we want to romanticize this just a little bit, right? Boys will be boys. You know, we, we know, Pastor Paul. The, 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 they, this is just a prank that went too far. They you know they they wanted to take his jacket and rough him up a little bit and lock him out of the house and send him on a joy ride ride with the strangers. Just teach him a lesson. But when you read between the lines and underneath the story, you know that's not what happened at all. This was pure brutality and barbarity. Look back at the text. It says, they stripped him of his robes. Now, that's the same term that is used when it talks about skinning an animal. See, they descended upon him like a pack of wolves. They stripped him naked. They took his robe. They tossed him into a cistern. Now, this is not just like a little, a little shallow mud pit like the students do when they go to uh, Woodman of the World camp and wrestle each other in the mud. I mean, no, no, no. This sort of thing was very common in the ancient Near East, and it was, a, it was usually a man-made thing shaped like, a, like an hourglass almost, or it had a very narrow top and opening, and it was dug out of the ground, but had a very wide bottom, okay? So it was meant to collect the rainwater because it only rained three or four months of the year. And then there was plenty of room for the water to accumulate. And so what this meant was this was a perfect dungeon, almost inescapable, right? This is not something that Joseph could have climbed out easily on his own. In fact, it's... Isolated out in the wilderness, no one would have heard his cry. And which which brings us to an interesting point, by the way. It does not tell us right now how Joseph is responding to this vicious, vicious attack by his brothers. But later in Genesis 42, the brothers do reflect on this incident and listen to what they say Joseph was doing during all this. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Can you imagine that? Simeon, Levi, Issachar, for God's sake, have mercy on me. Don't leave me here, don't leave me to die. I promise I'll shape up. I won't cause any more problems. I'll, I, I mean, you can imagine the pleas, the cries, how pitiful this was, the promises, the resolutions he made. And look what it says they did in the text. It says they sat down to eat. See, there was, there was this cold-heartedness on display where they were eating the very meal that Jacob, I'm sorry, that Joseph most likely brought to them, and they were impervious to his cries. They were sitting there eating a feast, listening to his pitiful cries like like a dog scratching to get back in the house late at night because it's so cold outside. You get the picture now? Well, in this, by around this time, this caravan full of Ishmaelites, and they were distant cousins of this group. Remember, they both descended from from Esau, I'm sorry, from, from Isaac and Ishmael. And it says that Judah had an idea. Is instead of just leaving him to rot in this and die this horrific death, let's at least just sell him to these Ishmaelites. And verses 26 and 27 tell us why. It says that let's do this so that the guilt of his blood won't be on us. After all, Joseph is our own flesh and blood. Now, let me just say something, and we're going to kind of drop a pin in this point of the story, and we're going to circle back around to it um, in the coming weeks. But you get the sense here that Judah is beginning to have a crisis of conscience. You, You begin to sense that he's kicking against the goads, that he's that he's wrestling with God in his conscience, that there is. He hates Joseph, but yet he knows what they're about to do is a horrific thing. And he's not brave enough. There's not enough courage yet to just stand up to the brothers. But we're going to see through this story how Judah takes on more and more of a prominent role. In fact, becomes the actual patriarch of this family. But we see now that, that there's just the beginnings of this. And Moses is just dropping it in there just to remind us, I'm... I'm working. I, I'm going I'm to be doing something here. In fact, when you, when you go back and read this story, Israelites, you're going to see I, I actually wasn't as, as quiet and absent as you think I was. I was working. I was moving. I was moving in Judah's heart. And Judah is going to play an amazingly redemptive role in this story once they get to it. But but not yet. Not yet. But his conscience is wrestling and they, he doesn't give in. They finally, they just sold him for 20 pieces of silver. And by the way, that's the standard price to sell a slave in the ancient Near East at this point in history. And you see their cold heartedness to Joseph on display. If you look down at verse 28, and it says that the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Literally, it says in the original language, it's, it's this abrupt. They pulled, they sold, and then they took. Just, just like he was a piece of cattle, just like he was a piece of meat. Then it says, they brought this robe to Jacob. And I want you to think about this for a minute. Not only is Joseph Jacob's favorite, but it says here that when they showed this robe to Jacob, that he not only went into mourning, but that he was inconsolable. Do you know what that means? It means that for the rest of his life, listen, this was a wound that never healed. This was, this, was some, this was a grief so deep that no human could touch that place. You know, if you've watched the, you know, the period dramas on Netflix or Amazon, and if you've watched Victoria, you know that after Prince Albert dies, and I think Victoria's in her 40s, that for the rest of her life, she wore black every day of her life. All the pictures attest to it, the historical records attest to it, because what? She was inconsolable. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. As Jacob is inconsolable over his son, and and how, when I say easily remedied, I don't mean easily fixed, but how straightforwardly this could have been addressed by the brothers. What an opportunity to say, Dad, we have something to confess to you. We, We think Joseph is actually alive. Now, we don't know where he is, and, and we, but we're, gonna, we're not going to leave any stone unturned till we go find him. Dad, we're going to confess this to you. We know this is a heartbreak. We know this may forever change our relationship with you. But we just can't watch our dad be inconsolable for the rest of his life. But for the next 22 years, they didn't say a word. They left him in his despair. Do you you get a picture now of how broken this family is? Of how, of how, of just how the sin and the consequences of sin over generations have just piled up. And you can imagine the Israelites reading this and saying, how in the world is God ever going to bring good out of this? How is God in the world? how in the world is God ever going to bring redemption? And here's the irony about this situation. Remember with Jacob, remember how Jacob emerged victorious over his brother Esau? He deceived his father with what? A piece of clothing, right? And here now the family dynamic has come full circle where Jacob is himself being deceived by clothing and the brokenness in the circle is complete. Now, let me ask you a question before we move on from this point. Can you identify with this story anyway? Have you been thrown into a pit by your brothers? Some of you are in a pit this very morning, and this pit is any place any situation, any relationship, any loss, any event where God's purposes seem to be thwarted, where God's purposes seem to be crushed, where God's purposes seem to be broken, maybe your journey to the pit is self-inflicted. Maybe you played a big part in getting yourself in the pit. Or maybe, maybe you're on the other side this morning. Maybe you're just reeked with guilt and shame because you're the one who put someone else there. And it just haunts you. You can't get away from it. It's like a garment you wear everywhere you go. What should we think about this? What should you think? What should I think? What should we think about ourselves? But most importantly, and this is the crucial point, what should we think about God and that's our last point. Let's look at sovereign design. Because you'll, you'll, re, right, you'll be reminded at the beginning of this series on Genesis, we noted that originally it was Moses who wrote this Genesis account 400 years okay, after the events of this story. And remember the occasion of Moses writing Genesis. See, the Israelites had come out of Egypt and they were wandering around in the wilderness, going to the promised land. And they had a few questions, such as, uh, "Hey Moses, how did we get here?" Uh, Moses, how, how did we? How did we, How were we in Egypt in the first place? Hey, hey Moses, where are we going, and why are we going there? See, they had been in their own pit for 400 years in Egypt as slaves. And as they were reading the story, now listen, this is so important, maybe for the first time they're reading the story, and they begin to realize, hmm, we actually weren't in Egypt by accident. In fact, it seems that we were in Egypt by some sort of design, some sort of purpose, some tor- some sort of plan. And I think this would have become evident to them as they were reading this story when it comes to the dreams. And let me just forecast this for you for a second. We're going to find out in Genesis 37 through 50 that dreams play a prominent role. That Joseph, in fact, has the ability to interpret dreams. It is his ability, God-given, to interpret dreams that God uses for him to win favor with Pharaoh. And not only does he win uh, favor with Pharaoh, he becomes the second highest ruler in all of the land. And not only does he become the second highest ruler in all of the land, but he's in a position to help the very family who sold him into slavery survive this horrific famine that is sweeping across Canaan. And that has to happen for God's people to survive. That has to happen for the Messiah to come. That has to happen for God's people to be gathered up. So what are we to conclude about these dreams that we read about here in this passage? See, remember one thing, first of all, that for Joseph, dreams always come in pairs, always come in pairs. And it's to emphasize the idea of certainty, that in other words, whatever Joseph is dreaming and interpreting, it is for sure going to happen because he dreams it twice. And what we are left to conclude, and it's very obvious, is that God is the one in this story, listen for Oaks, who sent Joseph these dreams. And God sent 17-year-old Joseph these dreams, knowing that he was going to share them with his brothers. And by sharing them with his brothers, knowing that it was going to set off a chain of events that was going to get him thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, and carted off to Egypt As a slave. And folks, this is where we have to see God's hand of providence behind everything that's happening in this chapter. Think about all the random things that have to happen, that have to conspire together to get Joseph, 17-year-old Joseph, to where he is to somewhere else, where he's never seen again by anyone he knows for the next 22 years. Everything seemingly happens at just the right time. See, Joseph is wandering around Shechem, lost, happens to meet a stranger. Someone who has just happened to overhear the brothers say they're moving on to someplace 15 miles away. See, the caravan of Israelites just happened to come by at just the right time when Reuben was away and could not intervene to save his brother. And Judah just happened to think about selling Joseph, who just happens to end in Egypt, end up in Egypt, who just happens to land in the house of Potter for one of the most powerful men in Egypt with access to Pharaoh himself. And we say all that and put it all together, and you might be saying, but Pastor Paul... It's almost like you were saying that God orchestrated Joseph getting thrown into the pit and being kidnapped and sent away from his family. And you say, is that what you're saying, Pastor Paul? And let me just be really clear. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. And you know who else says it? Oh, and this has a lot of street cred. Joseph himself. Genesis 45. Listen to what Joseph said. He's talking to his brothers. He says, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was, now listen, it can't be any clearer than this. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You didn't send me, Jacob, Joseph says, God sent me has a people to save, a Messiah to raise up, a nation to to form, a world to save. All of this was being imperiled by a famine that no one could have predicted. See, and this was important for the Israelites to know at this point in the story, because they were going to be reminded, you know what? God has not forgotten us in our pit, our 400-year pit. He hasn't forgotten Joseph in his pit. And Four Oaks, he hasn't forgotten you and I and ours. I visited with a pastor friend a while back, not, not anybody in this town. We were talking about the circumstance where he had been sort of unceremoniously removed from his position at the church by the elders. And there was a lot of inequity and injustice about it. Now, understand... Like Joseph, he knew, my pastor friend, he had made his fair share contributions to the problem. He was far from perfect. In fact, he was, there had been hurtful parts of his leadership and damaged many people. But nothing, I don't believe, nothing to warrant what happened to him. And I remember that day, I'll never forget it, as he was contemplating this whole situation and talking about what God had been doing in his life and his children and his job And he used the language of Genesis 37. I'll never forget it. He said, you know, Paul, my brothers threw me in a pit. And he said, I would never, no no one wants to get thrown into a pit. I, I would never want to go back to the pit. He said, but I am so thankful that I was because I can see God's not his plan B, but, but I'm in plan A. I'm doing what God's called me to do. I'm, I'm, I'm in the secular workforce, and I'm pouring my life into these men, and God's doing these particular things for me. Yes, I'm going to carry these marks around me for the rest of my life. We always do. But he says, I've come to find out that there's something more important at work in my life, and that is God's sovereign grace. Are you in a pit this morning? So much so that it's so difficult to see God. Isn't it so hard to see God in the pit? And you may say, Pastor Paul, I I just wish that my story, wish I knew that it could turn out like Joseph's. And first of all, don't wish yourself to be Joseph, right? Don't wish yourself to be Joseph. Joseph. But the second thing I would say, if you say, I wish my story could turn out just like Joseph's, here's the beautiful thing, Christian, this side of the cross. In Christ, it already has. In Christ, your soul, your salvation, your eternal future is fully assured. And not only that, God is not working on plan B, C, D, and E, and F in your life. This is plan A. And he's using it all in some mysterious way. You know, a lot of people want to, want to take Genesis 37 through 50 and try to, to chop it up into a philosophical debate between God's sovereignty and man's free choice. And it's almost as if to say God is saying to us, don't, don't spend your time in speculative philosophy. Just look at illustration A. Look what I do. And be amazed and trust in me. Doesn't mean that you're going to be second in command in Egypt and probably be thankful that you aren't. Listen to what John Walton says about this. He says, we must also remember that not everyone emerges, he, he means to be the leader of Egypt. God's plan for some is to remain in anonymous obscurity for their entire lives, receiving no recognition and no thanks, gaining no office And enjoying negligible results. We would not recognize their names. We do not know their stories, but they will be told in eternity because God does not forget. Be encouraged that God knows your faithfulness and is doing his work through you. Joseph needed to be reminded of that when he's in the pit, when he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and winds up in prison when he interprets the dream that saves the neck of one of Pharaoh's servants, but he himself is forgotten. And we need to be reminded of it too. And the reason that we can say that the conclusion of this story has already been written for us in Christ is that Jesus was thrown into a pit for you. Jesus was thrown into a pit for me. And this was a pit like no other. This was a pit where the just condemnation that we deserve, the wrath of God, was not poured out on us. It was poured out on him. Remember, Jesus is crying up there on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father had turned his face away so that all of his promises to us would be yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And Peter reminds us, This was not plan B of God, throwing his son into the pit. Peter reminds us in Acts 2 that it was according to the definite plan of God. Christian, for your salvation and for your everlasting joy. And my hope and prayer for you as your pastor is that as we make this journey through Genesis 37 through 50, that you will see that it is true for you, it is true for me, because of Jesus Christ. What man meant for evil God means for good. Let's pray.